We turn to the gospel as recorded by John, John chapter 19, John 19. Beginning to read at verse 14, John 19, 14, it was the preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour. He says unto the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, that they, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha where they crucify him and two other with him on either side one and Jesus in the midst. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. It was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, write not the King of the Jews, but that he said I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, and here's our text, 23 and 4, when they had crucified, Jesus took his garments, made four parts to every soldier a part, and also his coat, and the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved. He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. And it must have been that he took her at that very time to his home and then returned to the cross because you have nothing now in the gospel about what happens in the three hours of darkness and so on as recorded by John. Seems to have taken her home that she did not have to witness this. That's the impression left, and then he comes back. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar. They filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on, on hyssop and put it into his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, thus far the reading of the gospel record. Our text, as announced, consists of verses 23 and 24. It is striking and significant how often in scripture reference is made to clothing and in a symbolic way. 
Here is a passage in which Christ Jesus is disrobed. The soldier stripping his clothing from him and then dividing it and gambling over that outer garment, the robe. That's significant. And beloved, filled with gospel significance. He was unclothed that we might be clothed upon. There it is. In a nutshell. And it's full of gospel significance. But understand there's more woven into the fabric of this text than just that. This is not the only time in Scripture, you know, that reference is made to Christ Jesus and his clothing. Go back to Bethlehem. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and now the children can finish it, her firstborn son, not theirs, the father of this little baby is God, her firstborn, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. You've heard sermons preached on that, have you not? The son of God, born as a little infant, laying aside his glory and wrapped in swaddling the great son of David, the royal seed, the heir really to the kingdom. No princely garment put upon him, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He became poor that we might be enriched. But it's not only with respect, with respect to Christ Jesus that reference is made to clothing in a significant way. I take you, beloved, to the dawn of history and the beginning of sin and grace and the sacred record and our first parents who in the Garden of Eden turned their backs on God for a piece of fruit and rebelled And they stood in their nakedness, and love became lust. And God came in visible form to rebuke them for their foolishness and to lay a curse upon them, and did what? He clothed them with skin, didn't he not? The skin of an animal. An animal sacrificed its life and blood was shed that they might be clothed upon. Beloved, pointing to whom and to what? Read our text. Pointing to him. Is that not true? He being the lamb 
unclothed upon, that they might be clothed upon, hanging naked on the cross. But that's not the end of it. It's woven through the texture of Scripture. We mentioned Genesis. I take you to the book of Revelation, to the second to the last chapter, and you read of the church represented in the figure of Jerusalem coming down as a what? As a bride adorned for her husband and clothed in pure white robes. The robes of righteousness. What gives the right to those who are to be identified with the publicans and the sinners to be clothed with the robes of righteousness? You know as well as I do, beloved. This one, this one, the shedding of his blood and suffering what he did on, at Golgotha upon that cross. And so, beloved, giving to us the right. That humility, suffering, that degradation for the likes of us. That's the gospel, you see, that you find in this text. There is... Beloved, much that is, shall I say, exposed as you consider this text. Christ being unclothed reveals to us much. It reveals us great depths concerning Christ and God's love for us. But also, don't under, let's understand it, lays something else bare, does it not? As he hangs there naked, what it reveals is the hearts of men. Those who did this to him and gloried in it. Don't forget that either. And so, beloved, there is in this text much that's laid bare, you might say. There is that which is evil that is laid bare, but God be thanked, there is also gospel exposed and revealed here, and that's especially what we want to look at a few moments before we turn to the table. Because if we're going to sit with the righteous Father, God at the table he has prepared, we better be clothed with a righteousness. Whose righteousness? Whose clothing? The one who suffered the shame, beloved, in our stead, in an hour behalf. The Son of God. Because that's the great theme of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's the theme of the Gospel of John. The Son of God. 
made an open shame, treated with contempt, fulfilling prophecy, and serving this glorious gospel word. The scene of the disrobing of Christ Jesus and the soldiers casting lots over that robe, of course, happens at the very foot of the cross. They have hoisted him up. And he hangs riveted to that cross and waves of pain and anguish roll through his body. And there at the foot of the cross, there is a small pile of clothing, his as well as that of the two thieves, the malefactors, where, whom he was raised, as well as his seamless garment. Before Christ was crucified, of course, they stripped him. His outer clothing, his inner clothing, his sandals, and they laid the cross upon the earth, and they laid his body on that cross, and they tied ropes around his forearms, and then they nailed spikes through his wrists and through his, his ankles. They put a placard at the top of that cross. They put a little platform under his heels, which they always did, lest one sag too soon and be asphyxiated so that they could stand on their legs on this little platform under the heels. And having done that, hoisted up the cross and dropped it into the ground. They have stripped him of all of his clothing and of all of his dignity. This is very common, of course. That's how they treated those who were crucified. This is to be part of the essence of the shame. This is to make a man a spectacle. They were pouring, of course, upon him this kind of, of contempt, even the last shred of his dignity, if you will, and he was now considered to be a criminal, and he had the right to nothing, not even the clothing on his back, and he was to be disinherited of every possession that he had, nothing to call his own. In fact, as he hangs there, even really not to be numbered with humanity and men, a little more, if you will, than a beast, and so they treated those who were crucified, and so they deal with the Son of God himself. This, we read in the passage, these things, therefore, the soldiers did. They crucified him, the Lord of all. But understand, this is not simply the doing of the Roman soldiers. They're the agents this is according to the will of the Jewish nation and its leaders. That's why we began to read where we read. They're the ones who said to Pontius Pilate, crucify him. We don't simply want to slay him, execute him. We want to hang him on a cross. We want him to die slowly as we have our given opportunity. And we want to show all of our contempt and tell him with as much shame as we possibly can. 
strip everything from him, disinherit him, and we will watch the spectacle, and we will gloat in it. This they did to him. The soldiers did this to him, but they did this according to the will of the nations, don't of the nation of the Jews, his own brethren, if you will, according to the passage. And so, having stripped Jesus of his clothing and hung him as a spectacle before all, they proceed to divvy up the clothing. Common, of course. This was part of the soldier's perks, if you will. A Roman soldier was hardened usually from some the lower levels of society. They would join the armed forces because they had little, else to, little place else to go or skills to, to sell, if you will, and join the army, and they received food and clothing and some kind of uh, companionship. And then if they went to battle and there was victory, and Roman soldiers commonly had victories, then what was ever left of the village, they could divvy up among themselves. That's the commanders had taken the stuff of greatest value, and the rest is, is yours to use for yourself or to sell, if you will. And if you happen to be part of a little contingent that goes to crucify criminals, then you may take what they have as well, strip them of all their possessions, their clothing as well, and the sandals here and the outer clothing there and the inner clothing there and do with it as you will. And so the soldiers, of course, do this, do this with the clothing of Christ himself and of, of, the, of those thieves, those, those malefactors as well. None of the clothing has any value really except one garment does. And that's referred to in the text as his coat. We could call it a robe, which was without seam, woven from the top throughout, which was a rather rare thing. And to produce such a garment took some skill. And without a doubt, one of the women of the company of Christ that followed him here and there, who loved him, probably fabricated was a seamstress of this particular garment. Not simply making a garment with a torso and then sewing the sleeves to the openings in the side, but from top to bottom, it said, maybe even having a hood, and it had served the Lord well, without a doubt, as he walked through the, through the nation, you know, from top to bottom in inclement weather as well as good weather, having this, this coat, this robe. And they have taken it from him, and having divvied the clothes into four piles, look at the one piece of garment that has some value, and ask themselves, what shall we do with this? It would be foolish simply to cut it into four pieces. It would have no value at all. Tell you what, let's cast lots for it. And we'll see, perchance, whose it becomes. That's kind of an irony when you think about it, that here at the foot of the cross they play a game of chance. Because when it comes to the cross, beloved, there is nothing done per chance. Even the game of chance is according to the will of God. Every last detail about this cross and the, what led to the cross has been, of course, sovereignly determined by God himself, even the casting of the lots. 
Nonetheless, the point is, of course, that there is no decency here at all. There is no consideration. Here is one in the process of dying, and before he even dies, they are in the process of divvying up his property, what was left to him, and haggling over it. Imagine you go into a nursing home, and there's a door open down the hall, and you hear there's voices coming from, from the hall, and as you walk past, you see maybe an old mother of, of Israel lying there in her 80s in the process of dying near her death, and you have two children, one on each side of the bed, and what are they talking about? Who gets what? Remember, the ring is mine. Well, that's of more value than you deserve. What do I get? Well, you can have the necklace and the, and the bracelet, perhaps. They're haggling over her possessions, and she hasn't even yet passed the scene. And she's conscious and aware of that enough to wake one up and says, is that all I mean to you? Can't even wait till I die before you come like vultures to haggle over who gets what? At least let me die in peace, and then you can divide the spoils if that's all I'm worth to you. That's going on here, you see. He hasn't passed the scene, and they descended upon the clothing like vultures, and who gets what? They are in the process of despising. But beloved, don't forget, this isn't just the Roman soldiers. While this is going on at the foot of the cross with the soldiers, you have the nation represented by the people and by the leaders, and what are they doing? They're hooting and they're hollering. They're cheering, as it were. There's words they are saying. They have said, crucify him, crucify him, because exactly they wanted this shame, this open contempt cast upon him. This is what they were looking for. But as well, you see, this is part of their assessment of Christ. This began at Bethlehem, don't forget. Joseph goes with Mary to Bethlehem, and she is far along in her pregnancy, and we read they go to an inn or two, and they're turned away. No room for them in the end. It wasn't that the innkeeper in those inns did know that she was near the time of delivery. She may have been in her birth pangs. They didn't care. We're here first. There's no room for you. We're not going to inconvenience yourself for the birth of a little child. We don't care who he is. Have the child out in the streets for all we care. They pushed him already at the very beginning out to the fringe of the nation. And he's born in a cattle stall and wrapped in swaddling clothes because there's no room for them in an inn and in the nation itself. Here, beloved, here, they even take from him, as it were, the swaddling clothes. Hoist him up. He has no place in the nation at all. The Jewish nation represented here and those who are passing by are hooting and hollering and casting their derision in his teeth. The question is, beloved, why this venom? Why this hatred? You almost get the, the, you, you almost get the, the, the insight that as this is going on, 
They're high-fiving each other. They couldn't be happier. A highlight in their life. Hanging him on the cross with his shame and degradation. What's the source of this? What's the cause? Why this against this Jesus of Nazareth? I'm convinced the centurion himself was surprised and astonished by it all. This is a fellow Jew. Usually when a Jew was crucified by the Roman soldiers, the Jewish nation was somewhat angry that a Roman court was doing this to one of their own, or if they didn't have a liking for the man, just turned their backs on him. But this isn't just turning their backs. They're out here to cheer this on and a glory and gloat in this and to, add every, to, to hurl everything vile in his, in his teeth. Why? What about this Jesus, beloved, that brings this out? The answer is not so far to tell, is it? What is it in human nature that hates the truth as it's in Jesus? That this is the righteous one and he has a way of laying bare the hearts of men and was found in the hearts of men. And one can put before him a certain veneer of an outward righteousness and self-righteousness and he comes as the light of the world and he exposes what's behind the veneer. Don't forget he called those leaders of the scribes of Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers. Oh, we are those who have a love for God. We have a regard for God. And Christ came and laid that hypocrisy there. You have such a regard for God, you say, and love for God? How do you treat your fellow man, your brothers and sisters of the, of the nation? You have for them nothing but a disdain and a complete disregard. I thank thee, Lord, I'm not like the rest of the nation. We are up here and they are down there. Do with them as you will. Their high estimation of self, you see, and their despising of all others. And supposedly they loved the Lord. John says in the Gospel, how can you claim to love God whom you haven't seen when you can't love the neighbor and brother whom you do? See, he had a way of opening up to them their inward self and laying it there. They realized before his sight, beloved, they were naked and exposed. And he talked to them about the displeasure of God and established their guilt before God. Away with the man who wants one who speaks truth and opens one up and shows not only, well, you're a great sinner. I can stand with great sinners, you know. We're all great sinners. But begins to open up to particular sins as though I'm guilty of this and I'm guilty of that and I'm guilty of that. Oh, no, Lord. Guilty of gossip? Oh, no, Lord. Not gossip. I might be a great sinner, but not gossip. Guilty of who knows what kind of Sexual, oh no, Lord, not, not, not me. I might be guilty of, of sin, but not that particular sin. Or thinking too highly of myself. Some 
someone comes and tells you that, how do you respond? Who are you? Who do you think you are to tell me I think too highly of myself? Maybe you think too highly of yourself. But when the Lord Christ, beloved, who is the Lord of truth, says that to one, there really is no answer, is there? It is as he says. And so Christ walked in the nation, and he ministered to many, but he also came as the light and exposed the darkness. He laid it bare, as John says, you know, in John chapter 3, that God sent his son, and then it says, this is condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deed should be reproved. And Christ, of course, came to reprove men of their deeds. Not only the scribes and Pharisees, but as we saw last week, publicans and sinners as well. He was not a respecter of persons. And beloved by nature, not one of us is inclined to hear such words and submit to them and say, yes, this is true of me. Oh, Lord. If one is, and will receive these words, and the truth as it is in Jesus, and the light shining into the dark places, it's for one reason and one reason alone. Grace has been working. Grace has been working to give one a true knowledge of self, not only a true knowledge, Apart from grace, you want to suppress it. It might be truth, but I don't want to know it. Not only true knowledge, beloved, but an acknowledgement. As David of old, I am the man. I have sinned against the Lord. Lord, be merciful to me. That takes grace. Or none of us would come Lord's Day by Lord's Day, beloved, to hear ourselves laid bare exposed in our inner self before the face of God and the Lord. You can have that Jesus. You can have that scripture. I don't care to read the scriptures. It keeps confronting me with who I am deep down. And yet we submit ourselves to that. Why? Because we're up here? Oh no. Because grace works. Humbles one. And says... Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer and forgiveness and remission of my sins. But that, beloved, explains this venom, this hatred. Crucify him, crucify him, and let us strip him bare and hang him up with contempt. Because when he walked in our midst, he enclosed us. He stripped us bare. He laid us open even to the eyes of others and the sins within us. And we want him put away and silenced. Little did they know, of course, that by their crucifying him, putting him to death in the end, what would happen is the gospel as it were, would come forth from that grave and the work of the Spirit and the word would go forth into all 
the earth representing this Christ Jesus crucified, unclothed, unclothed, that others might be clothed upon. But as I've said, well, it is, it is the nation that's behind this whole matter of crucifixion. Pilate did their will, you know. The soldiers are the agents that are used to bring this about as they take from him his garments, make four parts, and then proceed to gamble over that one piece of garment, that robe or coat that was seamless. Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they parted my garment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. That the scripture might be fulfilled, beloved. And that means, of course, that wasn't they who decide, let's do this to... to to uh, fulfill scripture, they're ignorant. They know nothing of the scripture. They seem to be doing this perchance. But there's no chance involved, is there? This has been ordained, and God uses them for the casting of the lots and for the taking of this piece of raiment and taking the clothes from him. It's as Peter would say on Pentecost when he says, you with wicked hands have taken him and crucified him. But just prior to that, this is according to the knowledge of God. What God has foreordained, you have done. This is a purpose, beloved. There's a purpose of God in all of this to make a certain statement concerning men and the hearts of men and the sin of men, but also concerning his son and the love of Christ for his own, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he's, of course, taking this from, as we have said, Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 opens with those words that are, as you, that are well known, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Words that Christ himself would say on the cross. It is what we call a messianic psalm written by David. It's not the only word that is fulfilled in the, on the cross. Seven, verse seven, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot up the lip, they shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord that he should deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted him. You, you find those words at the cross quoted by one of the gospel writers, exactly the words that they would say at the foot of the, of the cross. And then 16 dogs have come past me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Fulfilled again at the cross. And then 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. Why does the gospel writer John do that in a number of instances telling us that the scriptures might be Fulfilled. In the first place, beloved, to remind us who the scriptures are, and they are not simply words of men, to underscore the inspiration of the holy scriptures. These aren't things that are just stated and never came to pass, but these are things that come to pass one after the other 
in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and especially in the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Men are speaking hundreds and even a thousand years prior to the events, and they come to pass at the cross. It's interesting, you know, with respect to this matter of, of David's words, that uh, they part my garments among them, cast lots upon my vesture, and they pierce my hands and my feet that almost certainly that did not actually come to pass in David's own life. He is writing as a poet. He's being chased by Saul and maybe even later by Absalom, and his life is worthless, of course, as far as those men are concerned. And if they, have it, if they had ever laid hands on him, they would have put him to death. They would have stripped his clothing from him and pierced him and found a certain perverse joy in it. That didn't happen to David because the Lord delivered him from the hands of Saul. God did. But if they had laid hands on him, they certainly would have treated him with this passion of contempt. So if it doesn't come to pass actually in the life of David, in whom does it come to pass? And it comes to pass, of course, in the great son of David, the Messiah who is promised. And why should we know that? inspiration of scripture but beloved don't you see this demonstrates who this Jesus of Nazareth is that he is the Messiah now you and I say well we don't doubt that go back to the first century and they bring the gospel beloved to Jews and Gentiles and whom do they preach one crucified one who lost his life on a cross that doesn't sound to me like victory that sounds to me like defeat and this is the one who's going to save us Believe in one who died? What foolishness. What foolishness to preach one who died on a cross as though somehow that's saving, that's victory, that's our hope. We want a king who has triumphs and, and victories, who slays all his enemies, not who hangs in an open shame. When they brought the gospel to the Jews, beloved, and there were some of families that believed, their family said, this cannot be. It can't be. He died on a cross. And then you have it as was told, you know, to the travelers on the road to Emmaus. The stranger walking along their side. Oh, fools and slow to understand. Don't you know the scriptures? Have you looked right over this part of the scriptures? Why it was necessary that he suffer? Here's the evidences. Here are the texts that speak of his suffering and this text that we have in our, our hands this morning would be one of them from Psalm 22. Why? Because only in this way could satisfaction be made for those whom he came to save. Righteousness had to be satisfied. Sin had to be paid for. He had to have the right to see to reinstate you into the everlasting inheritance that was only by the shedding of his blood necessary and according to the will of God and the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth suffered in the fashion he did is proof not that he's not the savior proof that he is the promised Messiah and this is according to the will of God and in this way he does accomplish the everlasting victory triumph over death and gives us the right as well. And now, beloved, 
one last word. I want to put this, as I have said, in the context of his being the Son of God, which, as I said, is the grand theme of the Gospel of John. There's any number of passages in the Gospel of John by which John demonstrates that he must be the Son of God with his power and his knowledge and so on. And this, too, serves that purpose, not because his being stripped of all of his clothing and hanging in shame upon the cross proves his divinity, but it does underscore something beloved. It does underscore something in a powerful, powerful way. Beloved, that he is stripped of his clothing. I should say that, that he is the Son of God means he doesn't have to die to possess everything. As the Son of God, he does possess everything. As the Son of God, the clothing on the backs of those soldiers and of those who mocked him was his. And everything we have, beloved, every last stitch of our clothing is his. He's the Lord of all. He doesn't have to die to receive the inheritance himself. He's the Son of God. All is his whether he has clothing or doesn't have clothing. It's not for his sake to, that he has forfeited the right to the inheritance. He must regain the inheritance. No, beloved. He suffered this with someone else in mind. He gave himself, did he not, with someone else in mind, with a certain Simon Peter, who had denied him with cursing and swearing, to reinstate him again. But for the likes of you and me, as well, that we who forfeited all right down to our clothing to be standing in the judgment seat naked and exposed, that we might be clothed upon again. Is that not so? With us in mind, beloved. God so loved that he gave his son to this. And Christ Jesus so loved that he gave himself to this shame and degradation. Why? So that there comes a time we might be called upon again and sit at the table with the Father and the Son by the wonder of the work of the Holy Spirit and eat and drink and be received with God's Father embrace and have a righteousness, a righteousness, beloved, that matches every requirement. God be thanked. God so loved. And he's provided us once again, is he not? With clothing. Not with animal skins. But that which is of the, of the Lamb of God. Thanks be to God for the gift of his Son. Amen. We turn now to the form for the administration of the supper. <clears throat>